global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. Developing and developed nations wax and wane in their importance in the global stage. While consumption and interconnectedness both increase, laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. How do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockford. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every Thursday, we take a bite-sized look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of our international guests. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us via email and social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today, we are pleased to welcome Ebele Onyeabo to our podcast. Ebele is a legal practitioner with experience as a contract administrator and academic researcher. She is currently a PhD candidate at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, having obtained her master's degree in oil and gas law with distinction from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Her research combines oil and gas law with law and development. Through a comparative analysis of Nigeria's and Norway's petrol governance models, her research establishes their resource course both as a function of poor institutions and as a consequence of consecutive abortive transplants of the Norwegian model. With a legal education that spans multiple continents, Africa, Europe, Asia, Ebele has written and presented papers on several other areas of interest. These include the issue of grand corruption in Africa and the Malabo Protocol, which seeks to establish a regional criminal court, as well as Chinese investment in Africa and its impact on African debt, financial stability, geopolitics, trade, energy security, and the Belt and Road Initiative. She is a member of the Nigerian Bar Association, the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators, and the Association of International Petroleum Negotiators. Abele, welcome to Global Law and Business. Thank you, Fred. Thank you for having me, Jonathan, as well. Ibele, thank you for being with us. I'm very excited to get to know more about you and and hear uh, your advice for us and uh, things you have to share with us today. Can we first set the stage by talking about your career trajectory? Can you tell us a little bit about the road that took you from Nigeria to Hong Kong with a stop in Aberdeen? What influenced your decision-making at each stage? Uh, yeah, thank you for um, the question um, concerning <laughs> a career that spans multiple continents. I, I, I've always felt like the world was such a big place and that staying within uh, your comfort zone or within the area um, where you grew up would only give you that much information or that much exposure in terms of the platitudes that the world has to offer. So I had always um, thought of myself um, inquisitive enough to, you know, go outside my comfort zone or, or, or where um, I'm used to and just experience other cultures, other, um, other places and other people and essentially expand my network of, of, of friends and legal associates. Um, Basically, uh, my career trajectory, I would say, is to have 
uh, a legal presence or legal personality that uh, that is more or less international. You know, I, I, I always wanted to see how far I can go in terms of absorbing um, other legal spaces and absorbing other legal, um, other juris, juris, the jurisprudence of other places and how all of that um, can crystallize into um, a law career. So um, I think what influenced my decision at each stage in which I moved is how well um, the, the specific place or the specific country or specific legal system um, relates to a little bit to Nigeria, a little bit to the issues Nigeria is going through and a little bit to um, trying to seek out a career as an international lawyer. So, um, of course, um, um, the UK with uh, um, the Commonwealth um, relationship with Nigeria makes it, made it um, a useful a stepping stone because uh, I was able to take my um, legal education from Nigeria and translate it to the UK's jurisprudence because we essentially have similar laws because a lot of the laws practiced in Nigeria were laws enforced in the UK. So they were transplanted from the UK to Nigeria. And Afterwards, when I decided that I was going to do a PhD, I decided, you know, it has to be Asia. I have not really experienced the Asian continent before I moved to Hong Kong. So going to Hong Kong was actually me diving into the deep end of the pool. And I would say it's been remarkable. I, I, I chose Hong Kong because... Yes, the legal system and the similarities as well allows me to translate my experiences, my legal education from Nigeria and my legal education from the UK. Uh, and, you know, it's, it, it had that semblance with what, what is already practiced in Hong Kong. And um, doing a PhD, which could be sort of an insular and um, it could be a very lonely journey, I thought that doing it in a city as exciting as Hong Kong would sort of balance out um, the monotones that comes from um, doing a PhD. You know, you, you, Hong Kong, um, I think Fred can attest to that. It's full of life, full of um, people, full of activities. And, you know, it's its location allows you to sort of explore other parts of Asia easily, you know, the, the, the centrality and um, the interconnectivity of the Hong Kong airport with so many other places allows you to explore um, several other uh, countries around Asia. And for me, that was a huge benefit. So I, I think I would say <laughs> these are some of the things that sort of shape my decision making. Yes, I have to say that really... Hong Kong will add an, an element of excitement to, to anything you do there, whether it's uh, study or, or work. And, and that's also something that Jonathan also knows. He also got to spend some, some quality, quality time in the, in the city. Um, turning to your thesis topic, um, what exactly is the, the resource curse? I, I have some 
intuitive idea of, of, of what it is, um, but it would be good to get a, um, a more detailed explanation. And, and how does it manifest itself in, in Nigeria specifically? And perhaps even we could, we could also hear about other uh, examples of the resource course in, in, in other countries. Thank you. Um, yeah, the resource course is, is it's a huge topic. It's been around for a while now, you know, and it's a phenomenon that a, um, a lot of analysts have engaged with in trying to explain the adverse relationship between natural resources or the exploration and exploitation of natural resources and adverse economic development. So if you look at um, maybe 16th, 17th century, 17th century um, US and maybe Canada, you, you would find that when they started exploiting um, oil, essentially, it propelled the wave of industrialization that happened. And there was a lot of economic progress and um, a lot of fortune that came from the industry that trickled down to the entire society. And going down the line, um, analysts started to um, record and report adverse relationships between um, producing oil and gas and economic prosperity that, you know, in a way that it, cre it, it, it allowed for um, problems in the economy and that affected the citizens adversely. Um, a good example would be the experience called the, the Dutch disease, the Netherlands experience in the Dutch disease. And um, this happened when um, the analysts were basically focusing on the economic um, relationship between um, their exporting natural gas and um, economic progress in the country, they were able to record that um, it created, the, 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 the oil and gas sector created a mono economy that was employing people with a specific set of skills. And that sort of increased um, unemployment down the line. Another issue was that um, it contracted other aspects of the, of the economy. Um, agriculture, manufacturing began to dwindle. And that sort of also reinforced the mono economy. Everybody wanted to work in oil and gas, but there was only so much that the sector could absorb. And um, while that was happening, um, because the agricultural um, industry wasn't doing that well globally, they, they found that they were producing products that were not um, competitive to a global market, meaning that um, because the value, the real value of their currency had appreciated, the value of the goods that they were pro providing or trying to export was higher than, uh, than their competitors. So that further shrunk um, those sectors in terms of agriculture and manufacturing. And they found out that they were, uh, it was easier to import goods so with more importation meant that those industry would further contract. And um, so it, it, it was a, a whole slew of economic um, problems that came with 
um, the handling of that one industry. However, um, down the line, analysts started to observe that there were other um, political um, problems associated with oil and gas. There were other social, political, and cultural problems associated with oil and gas. They found that um, the amount of money um, that the sector could provide um, enabled rent seeking, enabled rent seeking, and so the the, the political elite were awash with um, a lot of funds and. The more money they got, the more they were able to um, corrupt processes like elections and, uh, you know, distort already established institution and affirmatively disrupt the whole democratic process. You know, so the resource curse started capturing or the, the theories around the resource curse started capturing all of this and... Um, the fact that um, when the society becomes destabilized, um, there were issues like um, conflicts, internal conflicts, as people began to take up arms to um, uh, fight the establishment. And there was uh, the issue of entrenched, um, entrenched patronage networks that sort of spawned to regulatory capture to make sure that um, their position, their power, their access to the natural resource and natural resource rent is secure regardless of any uh, subsequent electoral cycle. So this is essentially how the resource curse has manifested in Nigeria. And um, just, you know, giving the examples that I have um, uh, uh, listed now, you can see that Perhaps it has happened in so many other places that you can think of, um, places like Angola. A lot of places in the Middle East have had issues. Um, again, the resource curse also manifests in um, environmental degradation. You know, uh, Nigeria is also a classic case for that with um, the ecolo um, ecological destruction of the Niger Delta, where... Um, our oil and gas resources primarily come from. So it, the resource curse is a combination of economic and sociopolitical consequences of um, exporting oil and gas and mishandling oil and gas revenue and how that consequence sort of disrupts um, the, the economic system of, of, of the country suffering from that and how it increases poverty and how it um, how it increases poverty and how it it sort of erodes uh, democratic systems. So would you say that Nigeria has made progress in the last decade or two on this and if not, is there a way out of it? How do you break this resource curse cycle? I think it's very difficult to break the cycle when um, we haven't paid enough attention to understanding how it has evolved, how it has developed, and how and the different ways in which it's manifesting. So one of the things my 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 research goes to do or 
my research seeks to do is to offer a nuanced understanding to the research class and how exactly um, entrenched um, elites capture, distorts the institutions that are transplanted to, uh, to manage or to govern the Nigerian oil and gas industry. So we have transplanted models from Norway, from Norway, essentially the Norwegian model, which seems to have worked in Norway. However, it is um, sort of implemented in such a way that um, on the face of it seems okay, seems like we are on the right track in terms of how well we are implementing it. But in practice, you'd see that it has been perverted in a way that the implementation sort of undermines the progress or un undermines uh, or, or is counterproductive to the issues that it's, it's, it is designed to address. I would say that solving the resource curse issue in Nigeria, we really need genuine legitimate overhaul of the system. And a lot of the time, administration, several administrations, they come in, they go, and they come in with the intention to overhaul, but they cannot really um, avoid the temptation of putting in mechanisms that would grant them cover to be able to perpetrate some of these vices. So it, it, it's really complicated. It's something that can only be repaired full swing. It cannot be done in bite sizes. It can only be done full swing. I think one of the ways through which we can uh, resolve it is to do more research, break down the issues in a way that um, we expose a lot of these things and we pool resources, especially human capital, together to resolve them. So I think more research and banging on the door, essentially, through revealing information about the industry. So we can turn for a minute and talk more generally about the practice of law surrounding the oil and gas industry. I imagine that it's very similar to other practices, uh, you know, other business-type practices, right, where you have contracts you need to draft and negotiate, intellectual property rights are, need to be protected, and there are disputes that you're going to resolve via arbitration and litigation. But I'm sure that it differs in some significant ways as well. Could you tell us what makes an oil and gas practice unique and what a lawyer who wants to get into this field should expect? I think what makes oil and gas unique is the fact that when I started essentially studying oil and gas during my master's in, in Scotland, I discovered that when it came to different countries, because you cannot look at the oil and gas industry with regards to just one place, you have to give it a holistic view, a worldview, global view. I found out that there were a, a lot of differences with regards to how things are implemented from one country to the other. However, there were a lot of similarities that harmonized a lot of oil exporting countries and a lot of oil importing countries as well. So I found that the uniqueness came in the fact that issues were so different and yet so similar at the same time. And it was challenging to sift through um, these differences and the similarities in a way that makes sense, you know, makes sense to the study of the sector and makes sense to the study of the industry. I would say to someone who aspires to work in oil and gas law to go in with the desire to have 
a holistic view, a helicopter view of the oil and gas industry and maybe find the aspect of oil and gas that best suits you know your level of expertise or your preferences because like many other aspects of law oil and gas in particular has this ability to court across all sectors of law aside from the corporate law and corporate governance issues and the issues with the things you you've mentioned in terms of contracts and contract negotiation and intellectual property oil and gas law tallies or marries with um, environmental law and policy. It marries with or is tied to international maritime boundaries, for instance, health and safety regulation as well. Um, also, international trade and investment law, um, human rights violations as well is, is an aspect of oil and gas. Um, and, and so many other things, you know, laws around state control and laws around um, um, you know, unpredictability of investment, unpredictability of host states in terms of investments. So there are so many, so many um, little niches and little nuances attached to the study of oil and gas. So it, it's the kind of sector where someone coming in can, you know, if, if your interest is perhaps human rights, you can um, relate to oil and gas as it relates to human human rights. So you can practice oil and gas law as it relates to human rights. If you're an environmental lawyer, environmental specialist, you can study oil and gas as it relates to environmental law and policy. So it, it is nuanced and it, it is broad, but there is... Um, there is a, a space or there is um, opportunities for a one to cover niche. So I would say take a helicopter view and find a, an aspect of oil and gas law that best um, reflects your, your legal interests and your legal practice and zoom in on that and specialize in that. Because even if you look at the oil and gas firms, you find out that they have you know, A, B, and C persons all specializing in different aspects of oil and gas. And even with that firm, you find out that they might not even have enough, um, they might not have enough competence for a particular issue and they have to collaborate. So the oil and gas community has a lot of room for um, people to tap into each other's expertise and collaborate, you know. So that's one of the uniqueness in, in the industry and I think it's um, it's one that gives varied opportunities to um, young lawyers seeking um, a, a challenging yet rewarding aspect of law to get developed in. Abele, we know that gender balance is a major issue in the oil and gas industry. This is reflected both within corporate firms dealing with energy law as well as academia. Uh, we know that there are several organizations pushing for greater inclusion of women in this sector. Um, could you tell us a little bit about this issue and more specifically, whether in your view enough is, is being done? We'd also love to hear about any ideas that, that you might have uh, as a practitioner to promote 
women's participation in the industry? Thank you for that question. It's, it's, it's a very relevant one that isn't often asked or is not asked enough. Um, you know, there's been research that shows that, that show that women are underrepresented in extractive industries, not just oil and gas. And underrepresentation is very, very um, visible when you start going high up the, the command chain when you talk about senior positions. So you have organizations like Catalyst, you know, it's an NGO focused on uh, gender diversity in the workplace. And they, they, they came up with a study in 2016 that said that women constitute at least 70% of board positions in the top 500 mining companies. That established problem. And we, we, we have to look at that with the diversity in the workplace and you know, more inclusion of women in the workplace has a lot of benefits. You know, it improves the talent pool. It promotes profitability. It boosts um, more accurate and objective thinking. Uh, it enhances decision making. You know, it forces innovation, you know. Yet, you know, there are social norms and traditional gender roles that persist in many oil exporting countries, especially in Africa and the Middle East. And they continue to block women from advancing. So even if you're able to enter the industry, the chances that you advance in the way that um, your male counterparts would is also questionable. So... Yes, while we recognize that there are international regulation and NGOs and other advocacy efforts that promote gender balance and women participation across all sectors, not just oil and gas, there's obviously still a lot of work to be done. And I think, you know, with all that is available now, we are at least on the right track by, you know, talking about it and talking, trying to identify the problem and acknowledging that, you know, there should be an environment where dialogue and brainstorm is promoted, you know, to address this problem. So while the advocacy groups and the regulations address, you know, that address gender balance lay a foundation, I think, you know, people in the energy industry, both men and women, Um, ought to speak up. They ought to organize mentorship programs. They ought to organize um, a a concentration um, um, staff meetings and seminars and retreats, you know, that that allows for this dialogue to be promoted and for this dialogue to grow. So they they, they need to uh, promote things like maybe gender-focused recruitment drives, you know, and they need to look beyond the recruitment aspects. You know, when the woman gets into the sector, how can she be elevated? How can she um, progress the way her male counterparts will? You know, and there are so many issues to discuss around this issue. Like there was a survey conducted that essentially said that women left the oil and gas industry due to insufficient opportunity and stagnation, you know, that they, 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 they said to have lacked 
the flexibility needed to accommodate women who have taken more responsibility, perhaps at home. You know, and, and some of these things have triggered their departure, and departure means that you, do not, you don't get to um, managerial positions, you know. So um, these issues that cause uh, mid-career frustration, you know, would always, always be um, a major block and will always translate to lower numbers of women in, in positions of power in oil and gas and, and corporations, you know, and, and we need to just create a space where we can discuss issues like, you know, women as, uh, women's issues as it affects um, maybe willingness to relocate, um, issues that uh, um, analysts call the motherhood penalty, uh, lack of sponsorship and championing uh, a women's career. You know, a lot of um, leaders, leaders in the sector that would champion this career and um, champion this cause um, if they're in a particular company and they leave, you know, a lot of the time there is no other person to fill in that role and say that, okay, I need to move this agenda forward. Um, so, you know, there, there, there are so many issues there. The, like I mentioned before, the issue of subtle or unconscious biases and even the explicit restriction, you know, where a lot of countries explicitly restrict women from uh, taking up certain roles because they believe that women cannot do it, especially in oil and gas that would require people to go offshore, you know, um, that, that even goes to the issue of resume bias. Um, a lot of uh, recruiters for this um, kind of projects would, you know, just looking at the name and seeing a woman there and, and knowing that, okay, this is a role that traditionally has been occupied by men. There is that um, resume bias where the, 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 the recruiter would automatically decide, okay, let's not put the woman um, forward, you know. So the statistics are grim, but the dialogue is happening. It needs to be encouraged and it looks promising, especially with the amount of dialogue and the amount of research and the amount of revelation and the amount of data that is coming out all from this dialogue, you know, so that there is some hope. So on the subject of Nigeria, the economy there is generating increasing excitement. While preparing for the podcast, uh, we read that Nigeria is expected to have the highest average GDP growth in the world between 2010 and 2050. The forecast was issued a few years ago, so it's possible it may have been adjusted, but that's still eye-catching. Can you give us an insider's perspective on the future of Nigeria and in specific, um, what new opportunities it might present for international businesses. We'd also love to hear any thoughts you have on Africa's prospects more broadly, uh, you know, any countries in West Africa, particularly that we should keep an eye on. Yeah. So of course there is always excitement with regards to um, Africa and regards to business and regards to trade. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention um, things like um, the uh, Africa Continental Free, Free Trade Agreement that has been that has recently been um, um, signed and it's getting ready to be implemented. It was it, it ought to have been implemented in first um, of July this year, but due to the coronavirus, 
Um, I think it has been moved to February or January. Uh, I'm not too sure about that. But essentially, you know, um, when it comes to Africa and and growth, GDP growth, um, a lot of the analysts have pinpointed um, one of the issues for stifling um, um, Africa's development to um, lack of interconnected trade. So um, the, the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement was essentially developed to bring down trade barriers and allow for um, trade barriers like you know, fiscal barriers like tariffs and all of that, as well as physical barriers like um, the borders and customs officials and, and, and you know, connectivities in terms of, um, of, of amenities. So it, it, it is developed to um, make sure that Africa is able to trade within Africa and utilize the 1.2 billion um, population uh, in the whole of Africa. And uh, it allows Africa that harmony and that um, unism to be able to trade as a trading block with other countries in Europe and with, other, with the United States and such, where um, Africa's interests can be looked at as a collective. So historically, if we consider um, you know, looking at colonial engagement with Africa, we'd see that the way Africa was inserted into the global community was through export of raw materials to be processed abroad. So that meant that little was done to encourage value additions to these to this minerals within Africa. And because um, there was not, they, they weren't working or processing these minerals, um, industrialization began to dwindle, you know. So um, you'd see that even the, 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 the um, infrastructure on ground in Africa has been designed to facilitate um, taking commodities from the interior and out to the north. So trade has been historically organized around external trade. So um, I think one of the one of the things to look forward to in Africa generally and for Nigeria as well is that integrated um, um, integrated trading block and you know the ability to um, change the trajectory of Africa in terms of um, developing um, infrastructure that will allow in, intra-continental um, trade and as well as um, you know, perhaps um, when when you when we bring it back down to oil and gas, um, developing um, and energy, making sure that there is energy security in Africa because this is also an issue, and energy insecurity as well has um, distorted um, industrialization because um, generating power um, industry by industry. Uh, affirmatively adds to the cost of production and adds to the cost of commodity. So um, there is a lot to look at, even in terms of um, energy security uh, with regards to energy transition. You know, Africa has 
huge potential for solar and wind energy. And um, it, it is all about getting these amenities right to be able to attract the necessary investment to um, develop the sectors, which will in turn, which will in turn um, help bolster um, the global trade, Africa's global, Africa globally trading and Africa trading within itself. So um, I think there is there is a lot to look forward to. These are interesting times, and um, I, I can I, I cannot wait to sort of see how. Um, the Africa Continental Food Trade Agreement is implemented going forward. Abele, this is the point in the podcast where we ask for recommendations. We'd love to hear uh, about um, whether it's a book, um, magazine article, TV series, movie, whatever it is that you think uh, is worth recommending. We'd, we'd love to hear about it. For me, I, I used to like books, you know, I'd, I'd read for leisure. And when I started the PhD, I found out that essentially all I was doing was rummaging through pages and pages of research. And that um, sort of brought down the amount of times that I would read for leisure. And I found out that even when I'd read for leisure, I was reading books that were essentially relating to my research. The book I'm currently reading right now is by Daron Asimogu, and it's titled Why Nations Fail. It essentially looks at the foundational blocks. He talked about several countries and the foundational blocks for the construction of these countries and the construction of their institutions and how these blocks have either allowed the nation to progress or predetermined its failure and predetermined the fact that it will continuously fail unless things are done to address some of the foundational issues. So I think I would recommend that book. I also read one of my favorite books so far, uh, Michelle Obama's Becoming, because it sort of just looks at a woman trying to thrive in the legal sector. Everybody thought it would be about how she's been she was the wife of the president, but a lot of a lot of the book was about how you know she survived or she thrived even in in Ivy League colleges where she was at times the only black person in an entire class, and how she also thrives in a law firm when she practiced law. So I think these are good books. As for a TV series, I would um, recommend strongly recommend actually. Bojack Horseman. So Bojack Horseman is animated. A lot of people wouldn't like that, but I did start watching it because I, I thought it was calming and helped me relax after a long day of research. And I found out that it was dealing with a lot of mental health issues that you know people don't even usually uh, pick up on. It deals a lot with depression and it deals a lot with generational mental issues in terms of um, one person, grandfather, great-grandfather, perpetrating a kind of behavior that affects the way the parents behave and affects the way the child, the, the way they interact with the children, which will affect the way the child behaves. So it was quite a surprise, but I quite enjoyed it. And I got, you know, a lot of insight to um, a lot of the things that we would actually even take for granted. For a YouTube video, I always, always watch Vox and Vice 
documentaries on YouTube. That's one of the things that um, I don't I don't even know whether they have other platforms where they publish some of their things, but they I do follow their YouTube channel. I quite enjoy their little nuggets, videos of six minutes, and they talk about everything from colonialism to um, the civil rights movements, for instance, in the U.S., to the Belt and Road Initiative and the connectivity, um, the new Silk Roads and how China intends to connect the world through a new trade route. So it, they, they, they do have so much, you know, one day. And it's, it's like my little six, seven, eight-minute video encyclopedia just for, for the day. It just played in the background. Belle, thank you for those recommendations. I have a long road trip coming up, and that's certainly given me a lot of ideas in terms of what I can of what I can read during during the trip. Jonathan, what about you? What do you have for us today? I just got done reading a pair of articles in the UK Asian Asian Review about Malaysia's one MDB scandal, and as you may know, recently. Um, he, so this is the former prime minister of Malaysia, and he was convicted uh, on several counts, and he's going to be jailed for 12 years. Of course, he's going to appeal it, but it's interesting because Goldman Sachs was tied up in this scandal. Um, J-Lo's alter ego, whose name is Jolo, um, who is a financier from Malaysia, is tied up in it, and he's, I think, currently hiding in China still. Um, so it, it, this came came down, I think, last summer, and so uh, this just this summer, uh, Goldman Sachs is now settled for, I think, almost $4 billion with Malaysia to drop some charges against the bank in Malaysia. Um, and, and it's very interesting because it, it kind of ties a bow on uh, this story in Malaysia about uh, what happens when government officials misappropriate funds. You know, this is a former prime minister who's now being convicted. And I don't know if that would happen in the U.S., even if uh, on this scale, it was turned out it's about $10 million U.S. dollars that uh, this former prime minister apparently uh, stole, got access to with the help of uh, some insiders. So fascinating story. Uh, also very sad, of course, because we don't like seeing uh, any countries, uh, any people in any country getting, uh, you know, getting defrauded in this way. Um, but it certainly is an interesting read. So I recommend that uh, the article is called Malaysia's Najib to be jailed for 12 years after one MDB conviction. And there will be follow-on stories as well, of course, about the Goldman Sachs settlement. So uh, that's what I recommend if you're interested in that flavor of, uh, of news. Um, Fred, what do you have for us? So there's a website um, that I find very useful, and I'm surprised that it's not more popular. I, I would have thought that by now it, it would have been better known, but I've come to realize that um, many people – within the target audience don't know about it. So the name of this um, website, and then of course they have a, an app that you can use on your smartphone, is Forvo, F-O-R-V-S and Victor O. And it essentially uh, provides a database of pronunciations. So if there's a, a term with which you're unfamiliar, um, you can look it up and you can look it up by language. So if there's a a term that's pronounced differently in a different language. You you can you can hear uh, the different uh, the different versions. Even within the same language, you usually have information regarding the identity of of the person who. And this is um, 
user provided content basically. So uh, people from all over the world contribute. So if you're looking up a word in English, it'll, you might find pronunciations, um, uh, you know, voice samples provided by people from England, from people, people from the U S looking for something in Spanish. You might, you might, you might see someone from Peru, someone from Mexico. Um, it, it's, it's incomplete. Obviously not, not, not every single term you're looking for will be there, but that's one of the great things about it. If you do know how to say something, you can, you can make your own contribution and, and help, help grow it. And of course, uh, over time, the, the database is becoming more and more complete. So, uh, if, you know, if you're reading about a place like the Netherlands or, or, you know, Poland and, and, and you run across somebody's name or a location and then you're stumped for the correct pronunciation, uh, try, try Forvo. Uh, there's a good, there's a good chance you'll, you'll, you'll find it there. I can't believe that you kept this hidden from me all this time. We've known each other, Fred, that's extremely useful. And I just used it to look up the former prime minister's name to see if I pronounced it correctly. And I was close enough, but, uh, that, that's a great resource. Thanks for sharing that. There you go. As, as I as I anticipated, you know, uh, it, it'll be an eye opener for many people. Well, Abele, I'd like to thank you once again for for being our guest. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, glad to connect over over the airwaves, and hopefully, we'll be able to to have you back on the podcast soon for for another interview. Thank you for having me. It's been fascinating, and I have been, you know rummaging through all the interviews you've had in the podcast and I've been playing some of them and they've been quite, quite interesting. So thank you. Thank you for keeping that up. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue to discuss developments in global law and business and tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Mm -hmm.